Sub Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen. I talk about and analyze MMA fights. You can reach me at dukesuppodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at dukesuppodcast. We're going to talk about the UFC event from December 19th of 2020, the main card fights. The first one up, Marcin Tybura and Greg Hardy. But before we get into the fight itself, a somewhat related piece of news here, Claressa Shields was making headlines by venturing into mixed martial arts, and the big headline was that she skipped the UFC and signed with the PFL, in short, because she felt they were going to develop her better. And the UFC caught a little bit of flack for this because they tend to, exploit's too strong of a word, but they tend to get the most out of people in the short term rather than invest and build like boxers do, where you spend you know 20 fights as an amateur, 30 fights before you hit any world-class competition. And, uh, and I think that's partly true, but I think the reason I bring this up is that Greg Hardy's a good example of when the UFC has built somebody up. They gave him what amounted to two cans in a row, his first fights, which for a guy that's brand new is completely appropriate. Maybe he shouldn't have been in the UFC, but those were good matchups, winnable matchups for him. And aside from his detour on that uh, short notice fight with Alexander Volkov, Greg Hardy has actually been treated maybe not like a blue chip, but but built up properly and, and given appropriate opponents. So... Despite the fact that the UFC caught, uh, and some of it coming from Shields, although she was very nice about it, I think the UFC has the ability to build up fighters, and they may even have built up her and spent a couple of years giving her developmental fights, basically. Plus, the women's divisions, a little like heavyweight, are fairly shallow, and Shields might just need some defensive wrestling and some defensive grappling to make it near the top of those those divisions to start making some waves and gaining some popularity. On to the first fight, Marcin Tybura, Greg Hardy. So there was a little bit of talk about Hardy cutting weight to make the heavyweight limit. I'm going to detour again by saying that it's so frustrating to me that there's a lid on heavyweight, that 265 is the the limit there. It doesn't protect fighters. All it does is limit opportunities for really big guys. Once you hit 220, 230 pounds, it's pretty much even after that. We've seen this proven. We've seen it proven in pride, the best heavyweight in pride, And one of the best of all times was Fedor, who typically weighed 230, give or take a few pounds. Maybe he made it into the upper 230s, but he was also 5'11 and doughy. This is a guy that if he got lean, probably could have made middleweight. Definitely could have made 205 on any given Sunday. We've seen lots of examples in the UFC. Randy Couture. Mirko Filipovic, Stipe, the current heavyweight champion and the most decorated UFC champion of all time, has weighed in as high as 242 and in his last fight as little as 232. This is not a big, big guy. He's fought big guys. He's fought guys that cut to make the limit. Kane, also not the biggest guy. He's only 6'1". Well, they said he's 6'1". He was really about 6'2", maybe maybe 6'2 and a half. How did his fights with the giant Brock Lesnar go? Not well for Lesnar. Lesnar notably cut down to get to 265, and he got taken out by a guy that weighed around 240. So this limit on 
on the heavyweight class is frustrating and it's silly. And once again, it unnecessarily causes really big guys to cut weight. Another great example, Vandalay Silva and Mark Hunt. Did Wandy need any protecting during that fight because of this huge weight discrepancy? Mark Hunt at the time, who couldn't have made 265, he didn't. 265 is ridiculous. It limits opportunity. It, start, it causes unnecessary weight cutting, and it doesn't protect fighters. That said, let's get back to Marcin Tybura, Greg Hardy. Early on, I noticed that Hardy, being somewhat green still, is biting big on Tybura's feints. The other thing I noticed, more importantly, is that Tybura in the first round wasn't able to take advantage of that. He wasn't going first. He was really looking to counter, and he didn't throw a whole lot. He threw some little kicks. He landed a couple of good punches in the first round, but that was it. I noticed Tybura doing another strange thing. He was blocking with his forearm covering the center of his face. Hardy's stand-up ended up looking really good in this fight. And I was really just waiting on him to make an adjustment and throw any kind of a hook right around that ridiculous block. I don't know what Tybura was thinking. I loved, after the first round, Bizping started, uh, was grading Hardy, saying, he looks like he's an A-. minus." And as the commercial broke, you hear DC laughing and saying, almost like he thinks they're off air, <laughs> you're out of your mind. I agree. I fully agree. Hardy looked good, and his stand-up had moments where it looked good. But a lot of the reason his stand-up was so successful wasn't because he was that good. It was because Tybura was just letting himself be a target. And this was proven in the second round. Now, Hardy was tired, getting tired in the second round. But Tybura started going first, started winning the stand-up, and proved that Hardy's success might be because of improved skills, but he it wasn't because he was that much better than Tybura. Tybura just really hadn't gotten him gotten himself into gear. The overhand lead left was a big winner for Tybura, and part of that was because Greg Hardy hunches down a little, a little bit like Hanato Moicano did last week, uh, making it hard to get away from that punch. He had some weight on his lead leg, a little more weight on his lead leg. And Tybura kept hitting it over and over and over. The story of this fight, though, was just how bad Greg Hardy's ground game was. Tybura made the adjustments in between rounds that he needed to make and won the stand-up. And then he got it to the ground, and it was over immediately. Hardy offered nothing. I'm not sure if it was because he has no ground skills, because he displayed literally none of them. He didn't attempt anything. He didn't even attempt basic, not basic, he didn't attempt unskilled maneuvers to get himself out of danger, which tells me that there was likely another influence other than a lack of skill. He likely was completely exhausted, and within that same bundle there of being exhausted, he likely wanted out, neither of which is a great sign for, for somebody who's trying to be a professional fighter. Tybura's failings in the first round and then his subsequent success on the feet in the second round is a really good example of how hard counter-striking is. Counter-strikers have really caught flack over the year for being boring and 
We've seen that, of course, Anderson Silva and Lyoto Machida are great examples of, of guys that were really good and managed to catch some flack. Steven Thompson has at times caught flack, um, although he's less of a counter-striker than Silva or Machida. But Tybura thought he was going to be able to counter a less skilled opponent in Greg Hardy, and he just couldn't. Counter-striking maybe catches uh, catches a little bit of hate that it doesn't deserve. Real quick, back to building up Greg Hardy, building him up as a fighter. This was a good test because Tybur's stand-up is not. It's not that impressive. He's fine. He's a good fighter. He's had great success this year. But giving him Tybur, a guy who likes to fight on the ground. It was a good test. Once again, a smart building move by the UFC because now, of course, Greg Hardy could always quit. He could always go to boxing. He could always wash out, decide he can't do it anymore, doesn't want to do it, whatever. But he's going to go back, and this should be a wake-up call that he needs to lose some weight, get some cardio, and get to work on the ground, which is going to be way better for him than if he had gone out, fought a guy who had better stand up, and gotten plowed on the feet. So ultimately, this could be better for Greg Hardy, and it caps off a heck of a year for Marcin Tybura. The next fight, Marlon Marias versus Rob Font. One thing really stood out here, and it was Marias's chin. It's not shot. I don't think Marlon Marias can't take a punch anymore. What I think is Marlon Marias can't take a punch right now. It was nine weeks ago that he got TKO'd by Corey Sandhagen. Nine weeks, and he comes back, and he gets gets rattled, and then he gets dropped by jabs from Rob Font. I'm sure Rob Font hits like a truck. That's great. That was too much for a guy that isn't that old. I know Marlon Marais has run into some obstacles of late and, and gotten beat up pretty good, but that was absurd. His chin needs a rest, and it was irresponsible. For him, for his team, for the UFC to put him back in there nine weeks after getting TKO'd. I just wish he'd had longer, and I think if he had, he would have fared better. I don't know that he could have beat Font, but he would have fared better. This temporary lack of chin, I think we saw this, the first DC Miocic fight. Miocic had recently fought, I can't remember exactly how long ago it was, but he'd recently fought Nganu. Nganu, who put a whooping on him pretty good. Um, He took a lot of damage to the head in that fight. Of course, he ended up winning it. His head was rattled. A little while later, he goes and fights DC. DC, of course, hits hard, but he's not a freak puncher. He doesn't have um, nuke power in his hands. He's just a big heavyweight, just a big guy who can hit hard. And really, he, DC, was hitting harder earlier in his career. The last few years, especially in the UFC, it seems like maybe since he went to 205, he hadn't been hitting quite as hard. So he gets dropped and finished with one punch from in close. It was a good punch. It was good timing. Stipe didn't see it coming, but I suspect it was the same kind of thing. Stipe and Marlon Marais each had taken concussive damage and then quickly turned around, and I think they both paid the price for it. Marlon came out in the first round, and he came out wrestling. Good. That's a good thing. The top guys know how to beat him. They know that if you pressure him, if you start to bully him like Cejudo did, you can get to him. So the blueprint's there, and he's either going to have to change something with his stand-up or he's going to have to mix in something else like fighting in the clinch 
or uh, wrestling, which he did. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was very smart for Marias to come out doing something different and to throw Rob Font off because in all likelihood, maybe they were anticipating him wrestling. Maybe Font's camp was anticipating Marias wrestling. But likely they anticipated he'd come out and do what he's done pretty much every time in the UFC. And so they had the, they probably had the bully. Well, they they did. Rob Font came out and, and put pressure and started started getting in his face. So they came out with the bully game plan, and Marias was short-circuiting it. There was some good stuff for Marias, but it just didn't work. Regarding Font's pressure, in a, after he stood up from uh, from Marias's takedown, it almost wasn't enough time to be considered pressure. He just went went after Marias and got to him, hurt him with the jabs, and uh, and got him down. I loved, the, uh, I loved the Rob Font we saw there, and I'd like to see it again. Unfortunately, I feel like this wasn't the test for Rob Font that it should have been. I feel like he got shortchanged a little bit because he fought a Marlon Marias that had a compromised chin. So I'm looking forward to seeing Rob Font fight again. And to get the test, to get the step up that he deserves. And I don't want to say that to belittle Marlon Marias, but I think it's just the facts. There's just some physical things that made that fight not what it should be. The next fight was Michelle Pereira and Chaos Williams. And I was ready for this one to be a barn burner. And it was fun, but it wasn't maybe what, uh, what I was expecting or what other folks were expecting either. What was interesting, I'll jump ahead briefly, is that Chaos Williams and Jeff Neal are both reasonably tested or or lightly tested guys. They haven't been around forever uh, with big power, and everybody, that's the big talk. Is they they're finishers? They got huge power. Look at these highlights of them uh, knocking guys out with one punch or with a punch from an odd spot. And they both did similar things. Chaos got a lot of respect from Pereira in round one. He landed two big punches where his power was evident. And then Pereira was basically just trying to figure out what changes he needed to make is what it looked like. However, because Chaos Williams was so inactive, I thought going into round two that this was really Pereira's fight to lose. If his corner has any kind of decent advice or if he's able to make a few adjustments on the fly, he's going to be able to keep at range, keep tagging, keep scoring, and end up winning the decision. And the big question going into round two was, will Chaos Williams keep waiting? How adaptable is he? Can he make changes? And can he pull the trigger when it's not ideal? Chaos's stand-up also wasn't terribly diverse. He threw a lot of simple techniques, and it doesn't mean that the timing's not important or that they can't be effective. But if he's only got a small bank of things, Pereira has the opportunity to counter that stuff. Chaos Williams' corner told him to get busier after round one, and we didn't get to hear the audio of what the coaches actually said. So I'm curious, what did they tell him? Because in round one, Chaos Williams did a great job of cutting off the cage and cornering Pereira against it, but then he didn't have a lot to offer. He didn't have a lot of offense to offer. Body kicks and low kicks are great ways to cut people off as they're trying to move laterally off the cage. And that would be a good way to increase his volume without adding a ton of risk. Those are lower risk strikes. Well, if timed correctly, don't tell Damian Maya that a low kick is a low low, uh, low risk strike. 
I did notice that uh, Chaos was real heavy on his lead leg, and I thought that that would be a great opportunity for Pereira to smash it. He should go right after that leg, throw it to the thigh, throw it to the calf, whatever. But we saw a few times that Chaos was countering off the kicks very aggressively. So it might be smart for Pereira to skip the low kicks this time. So Williams had a lot of knockout power, a lot of power hype going into this fight. And that's tough because guys that are getting quick finishes, guys that are getting finishes from walk-off KOs, you don't get to see their skills. And because they have big power does not mean they have big skills. So this fight with Pereira was a serious test. We know Pereira has skills. We've seen him fight for a little bit longer. And when you're a guy like Williams who is coming off quick wins and has a lot of probably try, he trusts his hands, he trusts his power, you can kind of get Koscheck syndrome, Josh Koscheck syndrome, where you get a couple of knockouts and then you think you're going to be able to do it to everybody. But the reality is you can't, especially as you get higher up. You don't even have to reach the top five in the division before guys get real hard to knock out. We even saw this with Stephen Thompson and Jeff Neal. Jeff Neal coming in as a big puncher. And it's not that Thompson didn't get hit because Neal got his hands on him a lot. What we saw was that Thompson was always moving away. He was always at the very end. He was never getting caught unaware. So there's a lot that goes into making a KO that is more than just how hard you hit. And if you go out there just trying to hunt and get the KO, you're going to end up stuck a little like Williams was here, uh, losing a decision because your volume wasn't enough. I thought in the third round, Pereira did what he should have done in the second round and, and probably the first round. I think he gave too much respect to Chaos's power. That said, he did get rattled. Pereira did get rattled in the first round by a couple of punches, and I think that's partly where that respect came from. Williams had a lot of good body punches, and he did great footwork. Cutting off the cage, he did a great job of cutting off the cage, but he also showed a lot of things that were amateurish. He had some real sloppy strikes, and that held him back for sure, but I don't think it's going to hold him back forever. I don't think that having some sloppy striking or some amateurish decisions in there are a death knell. I think that Williams is going to be able to overcome that stuff real quick if he's got decent coaching and a decent mindset. And that sloppy striking is going to go and it's going to let him take advantage of, of that great footwork of being able to keep a guy who's really explosive and dangerous against the cage. Williams had good opportunities. He couldn't capitalize them on them. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be the case for long. I think he will be able to capitalize on that, on the skills he has now, on his power and his footwork. I thought Pereira needed, in this fight at least, a little more confidence in his skill level. He, it was pretty obvious to me that he was more skilled than Williams. And he created a lot of openings from his odd movements and his feints, but he let a lot of them pass by. Again, there were opportunities that he wasn't able to take advantage of. But in Pereira's case, I don't think it was because he lacked the skill. I think it was because he gave too much respect to Chaos's power. So another possibility with Chaos Williams is that he wasn't able to... He didn't throw higher volume, and he wasn't able to take advantage of these opportunities he created with his excellent footwork because of 
a little bit of fear making him too conservative. And if being overly conservative was part of his problem or was his problem in this fight, the next time we see Chaos Williams is going to be scary. Co-main event was Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera. This was a, a good fight and a really a smart fight for Aldo. And we saw some we saw some old school Aldo in this. At the end of the first round, Aldo ended an exchange with a left hook to the body, which he had thrown extremely effectively through a great straight right and several good body hooks early in the fight. So he throws a left hook to the body and a slinging low kick that was just high art to me. The timing was beautiful. It was great to see Aldo kick more. I was worried that he wasn't going. We saw for years him kicking far less than he had in the beginning and the middle of his career. So it was nice to see it come back again. My thought on Aldo is that he has, his fights have proven to me over the years that he has crazy good skills. But there's a couple of drawbacks. One of them is that he has a traditional style and mostly traditional timing. So your opponent knows what your strikes are going to be. And if your timing especially is somewhat traditional, that's going to be much easier to counter. And the other thing I've seen from Jose Aldo is that he's struggled to adapt mid-fight. We really saw this with Max Holloway. So it seems like Aldo is admittedly amazingly skilled, but if what he has doesn't work, he doesn't have a different answer. And that seems like when he's lost. When guys have changed or negated what he came with, he didn't have a way around the back door. He can either bust through the gate or he can't. Which, if I'm right about this, is... A little bit of a knock, but it's also incredibly impressive that Aldo has managed to be arguably the best featherweight of all time with limited adaptability. That tells you how good his skills are and have been for such a long time. I thought Aldo won the first round, and then I heard the strike counts, and I thought maybe I'd lost my mind. But turns out Vera had thrown 32 low strikes, two to the head and one to the body. And I hadn't lost my mind, and I was correct that Aldo's work was more effective and more damaging, which is why I gave him that first round. In round three, Vera spent basically the entire round on his back to the point of frustration. And at the end, he made a crude jack-off gesture with his hand, dismissing Aldo's ineffective ground offense. Aldo didn't do a lot on the ground. He didn't threaten a ton of submissions. He didn't do a lot of damage. He mostly just controlled Vera. That's great. Whatever that, uh, that you're so dismissive of not being damaged or finished on the ground, but the onus is still on you, Marlon Vera to get out of that situation. You're the one that got controlled for five minutes. It's your fault that you weren't able to get out of this. If it's so ineffective, Where's the escape? I didn't like that. I thought it was disrespectful. I thought it was short-sighted. I thought it was a throwback to a time when guys would come in being dismissive of one type of fighting and they would only use their style and they would be they would easily get frustrated when they couldn't get up, when they couldn't get a guy to the ground. Uh, so I didn't like that. I didn't think it was a great sign from Marlon Vera. 
I think he's got a lot of skills, and I think he can be good, but that's not an impressive mindset to have. I understand the frustration, certainly, but I still think it doesn't bode well well for him. We'll see how he can rebound and how he can rebound against a grappler or a wrestler. That's what I'm really interested to see. Marlon Vera against a guy that's really strong and likes to go to the ground. The last fight, Stephen Thompson, Jeff Neal. Where was this wonder boy against Tyron Woodley? His movement in the first three rounds was phenomenal. He was so evasive. He was so quick. He was maybe not hitting as as hard as he could have, but boy, those strikes were effective. He has a heck of a good uh, straight right as far as timing goes. It's beautiful. He throws it going backwards. He throws it going sideways. He's never where you expect him to be. He's never hittable at the end of a combination. That said, that was the first three rounds. As he slowed down, as he got tired, and as his leg got hurt in the fourth round, he started standing and throwing, and I thought there were big opportunities uh, in those in the final two rounds for Neil to land. And when you look at the strike count, Neil landed nearly as many. I think it was 120 to 108. So it was a lot of a lot of punches, but it just didn't feel like that. It felt like Neil was waiting a lot. It felt like Neil was missing those chances when Wonderboy was standing for a 1-2-1-2, throwing four punches in a row in the fourth or fifth round. That's when Jeff Neal needed to come with his overhand left, which he did manage to land, but that's when you can land it and it will knock him out. If you land it while he's stepping away and ready for it, it's not going to work, but if you catch him in the middle of that 1-2-1-2 that he kept throwing, there's the finish. Uh, Neal was still being aggressive, even after getting picked apart. And, and again, this was a frustrating, much like that third round for Marlon Vera, this had to be a frustrating first three rounds for, and even the last two, but less so. Had to be very frustrating for Jeff Neal. And the fact that he was still aggressive seems like a good omen as far as his mental state. But the problem was when he cornered Wonder Boy, once again, he didn't throw. He, like Chaos Williams, did a good job of cutting him off and wonder boy leaves very quickly when he gets against the cage however you know where he's going to go well you have a 50 percent chance of guessing the right side and he's within reach so i think he would have been uh wise to try a spinning back fist or to try uh to try kicks to the body or if he's leaving to wonder boy's leaving to his right Neil's lead left was going to be there in a big way because Wonderboy doesn't put his hands up. He takes a big step, so there's a lot of momentum. If a strike is coming against that really big step, it's going to be hard to survive. I was impressed with Thompson because Neil, as the fight went on, started throwing more and more and landing more and more. Although he always seemed to be a little bit behind Stephen Thompson, he was having way more success. But Thompson was aware. Thompson's always always seems aware of what's going on or he seemed like he was aware of what's going on in this fight because he could tell Neil was closing the distance and he threw probably 20 strikes in the last minute just making sure he tilted the score in his favor. There was something else that really stood out to me 
and it was how nice and how sporting they both were. They both were very respectful. They seemed to, you know, like each other as much as you can like a guy that's that you're fighting. They gave each other space to recover when something odd happened. Um, one time, Wonder Boy gave Jeff Neal a second to pick up his mouthpiece after it fell out. There's guys that take advantage of those situations, and he didn't. I won't. I'm not going to make a judgment on each and every one, but I thought maybe it was they were too respectful of each other. The best examples of that were when Wonder Boy was backing up real fast, moving laterally against the cage, kind of following it, and there's always a crack between the fence and the canvas, and we've seen guys hurt their toes and their feet and their ankles in there. So Wonder Boy's foot dipped in, and he tripped, and Neil let him up, and he made uh, he made a, a motion so that you knew he was letting him up. He put his hands down, he kind of stepped away, and didn't pounce. And I thought that's the end. That's where the line seems to be for me with with uh, with being too sportsmanlike, with being too respectful. There was nothing wrong with capitalizing on a guy tripping. It doesn't really matter if it was against the cage. Thompson even fell on a kick in round four in the middle of the cage, and Neil let him up. I thought that was stupid. Look, we, we have crossed way over sporting. Now we're just making mistakes. Maybe the problem is Neil had some idea of how the fight should go, and he didn't want to deviate. But after getting pieced up for three and a half rounds by Stephen Thompson and definitely lost three rounds, despite what his corner told him between the second and, or between the third and the fourth, why wouldn't you want to be on top? Why wouldn't you want to be on top and in control? At the very least, you can bank that round. And at best, you can finish him. You can deal a lot of damage. That was probably Neil's best chance to win was to get on top of Stephen Thompson at least briefly and try to deal some damage. But he didn't do it. And I think he didn't do it not because he didn't want to have anything to do with Thompson on the ground, but because of this weird, overly respectful, overly sporting idea that they both seem to have in this fight. Like I mentioned earlier, there was uh, an injury to Stephen Thompson's right leg just above the knee, big swelling after the fourth round going into the fifth and he tried to hide it but it was not you couldn't hide it i'm pretty sure neil saw it and i'm pretty sure even if he didn't see it the changes to wonder boy's movement was going to leave him exposed if i hadn't just seen neil lacking that last little inch of killer instinct on things like letting him up letting thompson get up from a trip twice I would say that Neil finishes this in the fifth round. Not to crap all over him because Neil was effective and aggressive and he was still fighting in the third round or the fifth round. This isn't Caleb Starnes here. But Thompson had a distinct disadvantage. And as I mentioned earlier, this is where the 1 2 1 2, 1 2 1 3, the four punch planted co- uh, combinations that Wonder Boy started throwing came in and left big wide openings for Neil. But he was just missing a little something. He had also been beat up a lot for the last 20 minutes. And his punches didn't have what they used to have on him. He was getting tired. So there are other reasons. But I was expecting Neil not to be able to get the finish, despite the fact that he probably could have. Because 
Thompson's leg was in rough shape, and it slowed him down noticeably. He was admirable, but it was it slowed him down, and you could tell. During those longer foot-planted conversa- combinations where Wonder Boy wasn't getting out of the way as quickly and wasn't being as elusive, Neil continued, as he did early in the fight, to spend that time covering up. I thought that was a huge miss. So after the fight, Jeff Neal posted a little bit about the troubles he's had leading up to this fight, and then he had trouble seeing during the fight. And it it sounds like a typical thing that happens after a loss. A guy drags out the excuse wagon. But, but, I'm not ready to say that. And here's why. Because part of the troubles he had leading up to this were that his head coach couldn't be there to corner him. He'd gotten, he'd tested positive for the virus and he had to, he had to stay away. Neil was very close to being successful, to being able to connect and get more work done. He had opportunities and maybe, just maybe, if Saif Saud, Jeff Neal's coach, had been there, he might have been enough to tip the scale and get, make, help Neil make the adjustments he needed to make and help Neil get to Thompson when he had those opportunities. So I think in a rare, rare twist, this isn't the case of some guy dragging out all all his excuses just so he can blame something else for his loss. I think there really there really is a an impact from not having his coach there. He made some good adjustments, but he made them too late. There were also a lot that he didn't make. Maybe he maybe having your coach there in between fixes that. That's it for this time. We'll be back in mid-January with the next UFC event. If you want to reach me, I'm available on email, dukesuppodcast at gmail.com, and on Twitter at dukesuppodcast. It's been fun. I'll see you next time.